My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Oriane Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. Uh, To commemorate World Snake Day, we have a special episode for you. As all of you know, uh, you know, I love a good snake story. And for those of you uh, dedicated listeners that listen to uh, our episodes, you'll know that I ask each guest to tell us their best snake story. And so what we have for you today is a collection of some of our favorite snake stories. And I encourage you all to uh, listen right through to the end because um, I will tell a snake story of my own. Well, let's get into it. And our first snake story comes from episode 53, titled Tiger Rattlesnakes to King Cobras with Dr. Matt Good. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story, kind of a funny one in some ways. Uh, it has to do with uh, Dr. Good uh, performing surgery on a snake in front of a group of very vigilant uh, authorities. And I'll just leave it at that. I think one good snake story I can think of is the first time I ever put a radio transmitter in a king cobra. Actually, first time anybody ever put a radio that I know of. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so the forestry department was there in in large numbers. And in India, the forestry department is a little different than ours. In this part of India, they wear – they have sort of like paramilitary uniforms and they carry guns. And one of the reasons why is because there has been some some Noxalite activity there. And these are like these Maoist rebels that kind of hang out in that area. And it's just kind of intimidating. And there was a whole bunch of like official people there, like the, the main general guy or whatever you call him. And, and, you know, here I am doing this first ever surgery. And of course, you know how surgeries you do. You've done lots of them. And it's always the anesthesia that gets you. Right. It's like that's the part that that you worry about. And and. I don't know about you, but I just use like a closed chamber method, right? And I think we get away with that. We we just take anesthesia, put it in a cotton thing and put it in a little glass container, put the snake in there with it. And, you know, if you did that to a bird or a mammal, you'd probably kill them right away. But snakes can, for whatever reasons, can, you know, withstand really deep planes of anesthesia. And then you just wait for it to go down and we got this king cobra you can intubate them you can do some other things if you have an anesthesia machine then you can do a much better job right but i we don't have all that and so i remember just being really worried this snake wouldn't go down and wouldn't go down and it finally did and i finally got to do the surgery on it and then it wouldn't wake up oh no <laughs> and so it still still got a heart rate and it was kind of getting dramatic you know 
And you can sort of get a feel for this because they actually film this and it's in that National Geographic film, which is, I think it's called The Serpent King or something like that. But anyway, um, so we intubate it and we're blowing in there and I'm trying to expand its lung so then I can, you know, push it back down and clear that anesthesia out of there and get him to wake up. And I do this, we do this with all the snakes that we anesthetize. And we, we anesthetize every snake we capture out at Stone Canyon, for example, except for really like thread snakes or something, you know. So anyway, I remember the first time I blew in there um, that it was like, you know, I, I used all my lung capacity and it didn't seem like I was doing much, right? <laughs> and so finally, I just took a huge deep breath, like, you know, and I blew in there and I was able to expand him. And then I was, you know, we pushed down and we had to like, kind of like use five people to push each, you know, push that air out along the way. <laughs> and finally, that King Cobra woke up. And, uh, we were, we were pretty happy. Rom was getting pretty nervous. <laughs> and so, yeah, we learned, we learned that King Cobras have really larger lung capacity than I do. Apparently, so, <laughs> I um, wonder what would have happened if that snake didn't wake up. People, oh, geez, I, don't, I think they'd have pulled the plug on us and we maybe would have never done anything there again, you know? Yeah. yeah. Our next snake story comes from episode 59, which is one of our Rattlesnake Roundup series episodes, and it's with John Jensen, who's the former state herpetologist um, here in Georgia. And this is a story that uh, is particularly uh, close to my heart because uh, it has to do with the origins of the Orient Society. So here you go. Well, I'm going to tell you this, and you've already alluded to it, and you know all about it, um, was that first indigo snake you found was also, or that I showed you, I guess. I assume it's the one that was found at what is now the uh, the flagship property for the indigo, for the Orient Society property. Um, before there was an Orient Society, or as it was being Orient Project, I guess, at the time, wasn't it? Um, uh, there was a tour where you came down with Tom Kaplan, the, the, the man behind all the money for Orion, um, down to Georgia. And we're looking, basically looking for a place to establish a, uh, um, I guess, a kind of a field headquarters. Um, and we had a big group of people and it was a it was a sunny day, but it was a cold day in the winter. I thought it was going to be too cold for finding indigos, but there was a seemed like there was a lot of pressure on everybody in the, in the group that we needed to find an indigo snake to keep Tom Kaplan motivated on all this. And we went to a variety of places. And it, like I said, it was cold. It was like borderline whether they'd be on the surface. We had some of the top top indigo snake people in the, in the state out there looking, uh, not me included. Um, but uh, um, we just could not find a snake and find, could not find a snake. And finally, we're over at that property that, like I said, has ultimately become the, the headquarters, field headquarters, at least for, for Orion. Um, and I was by myself and I look over to Tortoise Burrow and saw the largest indigo snake I've ever seen in my life uh, till this date, probably just sitting there coiled up right next to it. And I've never been as fast as I was that moment and darted towards it. And <laughs> got in that burrow 
And I just hooted and hollered and yelled and everybody came from everywhere else in the field over to me. And I just felt like such a hero and helped the helped maybe get Oregon going. So that was that was my best best name story. Yeah, that that was great. I mean, that certainly that event certainly prompted us to to you know start buying property in that area to buy that property and you know all of that now is is under conservation easement and you know will be protected in perpetuity and you know all kinds of great conservation work for all kinds of species so yeah that was a um that was quite a monumental moment uh for, in a lot of ways Our next snake story comes from episode 12, Snakes and Their Prey, with Dr. Rulon Clark. Um, And this is a a story that that we actually hear um, a a similar version of from from a number of people. And these are kind of the the near-venomous snake bite stories. But, you know, I particularly um, enjoy... Rulon's story because uh, I have some some very similar stories so uh, enjoy this was actually like the the closest I think I've come to to being bit you know I, I, I hesitate to sell to tell this a little bit because I, I try to be like extremely careful like I'm I'm really really cautious with handling venomous snakes as everybody should be and anybody who's bit by a venomous snake, like the vast majority of the time, it's your fault, right? Like you were, especially if you were handling the snake. Um, the only legitimate bite is one where you didn't see the snake and accidentally like stepped on it or something, right? Like if you're handling a snake and you get bit, it, it's your fault. Um, but there was, there are things that happen sometimes that you you can't, you know, you just make mistakes. And uh, one of them was when I was working in upstate New York with timber rattlesnakes which are, you know, live in like beautiful locations. If you find a timber rattlesnake den site or like a, um, a rookery area or, you know, a basking area, there are usually these like cleared rocky outcrops that are on the tops of bluffs where there's like a break in the canopy of the forest. Um, usually, but sometimes they have like these amazing views, um, but they can also be pretty cliffy, right? Like uh, you have to watch your footing. And... Um, so I, I had a snake that I had carefully, I needed to get like a sample from, and you know, it was, I was worried it was getting away. So I had wrangled it and tubed it and I, I had it like safely in the tube and I just needed to like pick my way back up to like a clear spot where I could like set my stuff down and, you know, process it, right. Like get all that ready. And while I was picking my way back up, I kicked up a hornet nest like from oh, a fallen no. log um and you this has probably happened to you um you start getting stung and you panic right like if one if you kick up a, a nest where they flood out and the the hornets are in like attack mode there, some of them will immediately sting you and it's like this this mode kicks in of panic and I so you, you, you hit you kick up the hornet's nest. What? Where's the snake exactly now? It's in a tube, or it's in a tube, and I'm holding it. But like I, I dropped the tube without letting go of the snake <laughs> because I, I was like, I was like, I got to get out of here. But so it, it was like this weird like brain fart where half my brain was like, just drop the snake and get out of here. Like you've got to, you've got to run, right? Like you're, you know, you're getting like stung. And the other half of me was like, I need this sample. I can't let go of the snake. 
So what ended up happening is I dropped the tube, but I was holding the snake in one hand as I started to run. And I, I'm not going to swear that this would happen to everybody, but I, you know, snakes are not out to like get you, right? It's not like they're just waiting for the moment to bite you. This one could have bit me um, because there was a second or two before like, you know, the actual thought process kicked in where I was just like holding it and like running away. Then I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? That snake isn't like restrained in any way. So I, then I dropped the snake and, and kept running. But um, Wow, that's uh, yeah. that must have had your adrenaline going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I won't tell the story, but I have a very similar story. I have also, you know, never had a venomous snake bite, and I've probably had maybe, I mean, no exaggeration in the ballpark of somewhere between five, ten thousand rattlesnake handling events, mm-hmm. captivity in in the wild. Anyways, um, but uh, my event, the one, my closest time to getting a bite without going into the story and the details, I'm sure I'll tell it at some point in this podcast, but same thing. I had a snake in a tube. This is a, a great basin rattlesnake. Mm. And um, basically the tube went away. And <laughs> I was holding the snake like you were for a f- couple seconds before my mind clicked and I threw it. So right. anyway, yeah, I'll tell it, you it, other day. Takes, it takes a while, right? Like you, you have to, you, you, your body does stuff and then you like think about it later. That, that's how most of like our reactions work. And so, yeah, there, there's like a, you know, a few seconds there where you were just, you just got lucky, right? I know. I am definitely not a ninja rat. I wish I was. <laughs> our next snake story comes from episode 23 with Dr. Emily Taylor, when she talks about research, service, and women in herpetology. And I just love this story because it's, it's almost kind of like a, a feel-good story. Um, and, and, you know, it really revolves around a, a tragic death of a rattlesnake, but some of the positive things uh, that can come from that. Last year, I was... Um, called to a local preserve where some a visitor had um, had injured a rattlesnake, and it was terrible because it was a gestating female rattlesnake, and he had pulled a stake out of the ground that had a sign saying to stay away from the rattlesnake because she was in a little rocky area, and he used it to stab her multiple times, and she didn't die. Even though he actually pulled off her, he cut off her rattle and left her there to die. She was still alive two days later, and it was really traumatic. I took her home and operated on her and tried to save her life, but she ended up dying the next day and she had 12 embryos. And I was actually pretty devastated. These kind of things really get to me. Um, But because of that, something wonderful happened. And what happened was um, it got into the news. People were really upset that someone would go into a preserve and kill a snake in her house. And a number of people started calling me, including a young man, a 12-year-old young man who had uh, found, a, at the same preserve, a rattlesnake rookery. And now, Chris, I've never seen a Southern Pacific rattlesnake rookery. Um, for your listeners who may not know, that's a place where multiple pregnant female rattlesnakes get together and hang out in kind of in a big pile and gestate together and have their babies together. And there's hypotheses about why they do it, but we're not really sure. It doesn't happen very often with Southern Pacific rattlesnakes. They usually give birth on their own. And so I was able to go up there and watch those snakes for the next two months as they success each one successfully had her babies. And, you know, the pregnant ones were babysitting 
the babies of the non-pregnant ones while they were off hunting. And we saw so many incredible social interactions. And best of all, Chris, was this 12-year-old whose name is Wyatt Stapp um, became convinced that he wants to become a herpetologist because only he and I were allowed. They closed the trail to protect the snakes because the snakes were right next to the trail. So they closed the trail and only he and I were allowed up there whenever we wanted to watch the snakes. And it was just the most wonderful experience for him. We were able to save those snakes that probably would have been, you know, run over by mountain bikes or something like that and really learn a lot about what snakes do at these rookeries and turn really, turn a really horrible situation into something that was, I think much, much better. And so to me, that's, um, that's what it's all about. That's what education is all about. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing those ladies again this summer with their babies in the same spot, same secret spot. Most people around here, most people anywhere, wouldn't really bat an eye about the concept of a rattlesnake getting killed. It happens every day. But they did bat an eye when someone from out of town, because they were able to see him on a security camera leaving and determine that he was from out of town. Someone from out of town came to their brand new preserve and killed a snake in her home. And people here who normally wouldn't really care about a rattlesnake started to care. So to me, that was that was wonderful. It was you know a way to kind of honor that snake's life and and what she went through the the, the horrible pain and suffering that she went to was was uh, and we also did you know it also inspired us to do a World Snake Day event there where hun- over a hundred little kids came and got to meet Buzz and learn about snakes was you know happened about two weeks after um, this incident with the snake and so so many people learned about the beauty of rattlesnakes and how wonderful they are and how they should just be left alone and admired from a distance because of that snake. Our next snake story comes from episode 62, King Cobras with Gauri Shankar. And uh, King Cobras are just have always been a fascinating snake to me. Uh, and this is a great story, um, kind of a close call, um, near snake bite story, and it's a great one. So please enjoy. <laughs> Yeah, out of 400 uh, rescues, uh, each one is unique and uh, different. Uh, I ha- I have more, but I, I just mentioned maybe one. Um, I had few guests from Sweden, so they had come and we were monitoring a mating pair. Uh, there were already three king cobra, male king cobras and one female. So that was too much for me to handle. And I was like surprised, wow, like three males, one female, a lot of action happening. So I placed all my volunteers and my wife also was watching one female king cobra and these guys were watching. And suddenly this, these guys were walking around and they said, Gauri, we saw one more king cobra. I said, are you serious? That's going to be the fourth male. I said, no, it's, it's not possible. I mean, I, I didn't say it's not possible. I was surprised to know there are going to be five king cobras in that small village. So I was surprised and went looking for it. And I didn't find one. Uh, Then I said, like, guys, maybe you saw a big rat snake or some other snake. Maybe you're mistaken. They were very sure. They said, no, we did see a king cobra. And uh, these guys went walking around. I came. There was a small kennel. And uh, my wife was on the other side. I was on this side. I placed my hand on the trunk of the tree. And I was telling my wife that these guys told me that they saw a king cobra. But I don't think so. They could be one more male king cobra and uh, so I was telling her the entire sequence and these guys came walking and they said Gauri what look up there so when I kept my hand to my shoulder level and 
there is a branch just across and the whole king cobra like four meter king cobra with the hood up like just about 30 centimeters from my from my eye or from my head i would say and he was watching the whole time while i was talking to my wife and he didn't strike me <laughs> and when they said look up there and i looked at him so it was like 30 centimeters between my eye and the king cobra and he was whole time for a few minutes or a few seconds he was watching lying there very quietly and didn't even strike <clears throat> then i just moved very gently and so these guys were right they saw the fourth one the fourth one was right here on on the branch where i was standing uh, you know above me so that was like that close i i couldn't imagine a, a your rattlesnake or a russell viper giving me that much time to relax and not striking me, right? Your rattlesnake would definitely would have striked by yeah. then. Yeah, that's the that's the so, time that you were very thankful that these are very kind of inquisitive, seemingly intelligent snakes. <laughs> exactly, so, exactly. Um, Yo, this has happened many times to me, so I have more stories like that if you have time, but I would stop here. <laughs> Our next snake story comes from episode nine, International Wildlife Trade and Snakeskins with Craig Hoover. Uh, and this is a, a fascinating story that uh, really has to do with how people who are smuggling snakes go about uh, you know, shipping them around the world and in particular, how they end up packing them. When I first started working as a wildlife inspector, it was when there was really a big trade in wild-caught ball pythons. And they would come in in shipments of, of at least a few hundred at a time from, from West Africa, particularly from Ghana, Togo, and Benin. And um, I, I understood why ball pythons are called ball pythons, because they like to roll up into a, a bit of a ball and you know, when they're, they're feeling they need to be protected, but I didn't fully appreciate why they're called a ball Python until I had to inspect those shipments because they would come 25 to a bag. And so, and these are, these are adults, these are four foot, you know, ball pythons and they're regulated. They're listed under CITES in appendix two. And so they have permits and the permits restrict the number of animals that are in the shipment. And so part of my job was to count ball pythons. And I can tell you that when you dump out a bag of 25 ball pythons, you have one big ball. And that <laughs> ball has 25 heads <laughs> that are looking at you. Really all, I think, sort of wondering, okay, what are you going to do now, buddy? And so it was my job to untangle um, that ball to make sure that it was 25 and not 27. And so that is um, how I came to really, truly appreciate why they're called ball pythons. Our next story comes from episode 34, Animals at Home with Dylan Perrin. Uh, and this is a great story. Uh, you know, I do keep snakes, but um, I wouldn't call myself a husbandry expert by any means. Um, but Dylan certainly is. And this is... Uh, I like this story in particular because it's a husbandry story. It's about a snake in captivity, but it's how he learns some very interesting aspects of their natural history 
by uh, observing his uh, snake in captivity. So enjoy. My, my best snake story is going to sit on husbandry, which I think fits well within this conversation. So as I was saying with that quote, the better your care, the more your animal will reward you with their natural behavior. I, I was looking at my rainbow bow enclosure, which is right behind me. And that's one enclosure that I wish was bigger. So I'm looking at it and knowing that it's not going to be bigger until I move out of this place later in the fall. So I'm looking at it and thinking, what can I do to make this enclosure better and more natural and more you know, closer to that Amazonian rainforest? So I'm looking at this animal and doing more research on sort of the natural history behind Brazilian rainbow boas. And it really seems like they were likely a lot more aquatic than we think. You know, you, these are animals that you will even see keep in rack systems and whatnot. But we know they're a very high humidity species. And they also have physical characteristics that make them almost look more like an anaconda. Just the way their eyes are, their eyes are closer to the top of their head. They're not quite on top of the head like an anaconda or far forward, but they have aspects of it that make them closer to an anaconda than, you know, a Colombian boa, for example. And so I'm looking at this animal, I'm thinking, okay, I want to provide this animal with a large water feature. So I did that. I made this sort of pond. I think it's like 20 inches long and maybe 10 inches wide and about eight inches deep or so. So it's pretty big and it's all you know, dark side. So it's pretty dark. And I made it for her and I put her back in the enclosure. And for like several weeks, I didn't even know if she knew it was there. It had, it has a pump. So it has some water that's circulating. And I was starting to get worried, you know, this doesn't look like her former water dish. So is she even drinking water? I don't know. Does she know what to do with this thing? And I had no clue. So a few weeks later, after she settled into the enclosure, I fed her, I gave her her classic rat, she ate it, she coiled it. And I'm sitting in my computer, working on my computer, and all of a sudden I hear glug, 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 glug. And it's the sound of the overflow bulkheads pouring into the reservoir underneath. That's where the pump is. And I look around and I see her slowly crawling and slithering into this pond. And it was one of those moments where you think it was just, it, it really just stunned me and i know that anacondas will do this as well they'll eat a big prey item and they'll go sit in the water and i don't exactly know why it might be just to offset the weight so they can float and they're not uncomfortable but it was just one of those moments so she slid into the water and she sat i think she almost like 30 or 40 hours spent you know tons of time in there she completely disappeared and just her nostrils sticking out of the surface and it's just one of those things where you see it and you go this whole time that's what you would have wanted and it wasn't there for you and now that it was there for you you just immediately knew what to do with it and i was floored and it was one of those the best moments i've had as far as snake keeping goes and it just reinforced everything that i have believe about keeping animals and and trying to push yourself towards that natural natural world and they will reward you for it and it's incredible to see them do the thing that they're genetically designed to do or genetically evolved to do so instinctively it was it was just fascinating our next snake story comes from episode 61 which is another one from our rattlesnake roundup series and dr bruce means who is um arguably uh, the most knowledgeable person uh, relative to eastern dimeback rattlesnakes uh, in the world uh, tells us a very interesting story. Uh, in this story, he talks about a, a different species of snake, uh, in particular uh, a new species. Um, and this story uh, has a relatively uh, sad ending that, that you'll learn more about. So enjoy. 
I didn't know it at the time, but you know, I was the first one to find uh, a king snake that now bears my name in Panhandle, Florida. In the 1960s, I was road cruising in an area, and I happened to spot uh, a road kill. I picked it up, and it didn't look like any snake I'd ever seen. I was familiar with every everything in the area I was doing my field work in. And so uh, ultimately, I went back, a relatively small area, and I found a few adults, and I started doing breeding studies, and I discovered that this unique series of morphotypes was breeding true. And ultimately, other people, Kenny Crisco and others, have done DNA and have documented that it is genetically distinct. He originally named it as a subspecies, then he elevated it to a species. Whatever it is, at least it bears my name, and I'm pretty happy about that, pretty proud of it. But, uh, but the unfortunate sidebar to this is that because it's such a beautiful snake, it brought attention to this population and hordes of snake collectors have almost wiped it out. I have not seen evidence. I own property in the middle of this area. I have not seen evidence of one of these snakes as either a roadkill or a live animal in almost 20 years. I mean, I've heard of individuals being found. So I, as far as I know, it's not extinct. But this, this, this animal needs to be on the, on the federal endangered list. Absolutely. I mean, it's a population of genetically yeah. unique organisms yeah. in a small area. And it turns out there's another snake in that area that's distinct. That's the, well, and there's 15 species of plants, including one genus of lily found in this area and nowhere else. So there was some evolutionary activity that went on there, including snakes and plants. And this area needs to be better protected than it is at the moment. Our next snake story comes from episode 29, Everything Copperheads with Dr. Charles Smith. Uh, and this is a, a, first of all, a great episode. It's, it's probably one of our most downloaded episodes, uh, which makes sense because copperheads are, are one of the most commonly encountered venomous species here in North America. Um, but, but I like this story because uh, it shows us how long-term research and monitoring can really teach us some amazing things about snakes. This is about a male that we called A51. He was one of our Connecticut males. And we did radio telemetry with these animals and we pit tagged them. So we microchipped them. So the microchip is permanent. The radio radio tag has a battery and it's eventually going to die. And, but this was an animal that we caught in originally in 2001. And we put a radio transmitter in him and we pit tagged him. And he was at that time a big male. He may have been the largest male that we had in the population. I mean, he was a beefy, substantial male. And this was in 2000 and 2001. And we tracked him for a couple of years and replaced the, the transmitter because the battery life is only about a year. But we followed him till about 2003, uh, the winter in 2002, and then expecting to find him again by radio telemetry in the spring of 2003. Now we use Hollow Hill transmitters and they're awesome transmitters, right? The, the, their failure rate is tiny, but it turns out that uh, we sort of 
didn't hit the lottery with this one. And that winter from 2002 to 2003, his transmitter failed. And when that happens, unless you're incredibly lucky, that animal has disappeared. You're not likely to find that animal again. So this was spring 2003. His transmitter failed. There's this big, impressive male that we've been following for two years, but he was gone. Transmitters failed. You're not going to find this animal again, except we found him again. We found him in 2014, 11 years later. Wow. Um, yeah. And the reason we knew it was him, not because of the transmitter, though you could palpate him and go, he has a transmitter. And of course, the battery had failed years before, but because he had a pit tag and we can scan him just like you have your dog pit tag and microchip and scan it. We knew who he was. But the, the most amazing thing was back in 2001, he was a big male. 11 years later, he was a bigger male. His, his weight had doubled. And his length was probably 20% longer. So I guess the, the take-home message, what blew me away was that we have no idea how long these animals live. We have no idea how long these animals continue to grow. Because in 2001, I thought this animal was as large as ever going to be. And he was probably an older animal, didn't have many years left. And 11 years later, here he is, as healthy as anything, even bigger, even heavier. So, you know, I don't know what the lifespan is, but if he was six years old when we found him initially in 2001 and now 11 years later, you know, 20 years, 30 years. So we think of these animals as being short-lived. I would not be surprised if they can live for 30 to 35 years. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's amazing. We know so little about these animals, and uh, that's kind of the whole theme behind this podcast. That you know, by increasing people's knowledge, um, hopefully, it'll change how people think about snakes. So that that's a, a great piece of information one I had never heard. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Our next story comes from episode 14 with Melissa Amarello. Uh, and this, uh, Melissa's, first of all, a, a great person that does a lot of advocacy for snakes and snake uh, conservation. And she has a long history kind of working on snake behavior and social interactions. And, and the story uh, is really great because uh, it shows how. Uh, how snake behaviors, things such as parental care, uh, can, you know, or, or basically as people learn about these aspects of snakes, again, that snakes are animals too, uh, that it can sometimes change their perspective on these animals. So enjoy. I was lucky enough with my partner Jeff to be working on this nature preserve in southern Arizona. And this nature preserve, it's a uh, it was had been off limits to cattle for like two decades, and it's in a riparian area. And so what that means, tons of vegetation, tons of every kind of wild animal that lived there, including rattlesnakes, it was full of rattlesnakes. But that's not what people came there to see. They came there to see birds or butterflies, mostly birds. Um, so one day when I was working doing, you know, um, like manning the visitor center, 
a Boy Scout troop came out and they were starting their backpacking trip. And, you know, I met them and they were signing in and telling me where they're going. And, and I was like, well, hey, you know, I'm getting ready to go radio track one of our black-tailed rattlesnakes, Jaden. And it's in the direction of your all's hike. Do you want to come along with me? And we can go do that before you start your hike. And, of course, the, the kids were very excited about that. So the whole hike out as I'm, you know, trying to track the snake. And luckily he was hanging out in pretty much the same spot because those of us who have done radio tracking around other people, it's really hard to do when you're also answering questions and, and, and telling stories. So luckily the snake hadn't moved. Um, so, yeah, as we're like walking out and and I'm, you know, introducing them to Jaden and I'm, you know, they get to see him and he's just this big, beautiful and also super chill black-tailed rattlesnake that you could get pretty close and could have a lot of commotion and he would never rattle at anyone. Um, and, you know, I was also talking because um, this was like close to baby season. And so my mind was on rattlesnake babies. So I was sharing with this scout troop that rattlesnakes give birth to live young and they take care of their babies. And I said, you know, it's really neat. This is one of the first species that that was like published in and, and science, which is why I was talking about it with a male rattlesnake. Um, so, you know, the, they got to see the snake. They're all real excited. And so then I'm getting ready to head back to the visitor center and they're getting ready to head off on their, their backpacking trip. And they start to walk and the kids are like kind of going ahead. And then the scout leader stops and he turns around and he comes back to me after the kids are kind of out of earshot. And he said, you know, like I live out in this small town nearby that won't say, and we have a lot of rattlesnakes that show up in our yard. And I have never given a thought to if it shows up, like I chop his head off. But, you know, I never thought about them as like having friends and taking care of their babies. And I don't know. I don't know what I'll do the next time one shows up in my yard. And then he just walked off down the trail. <laughs> and it was well, that's... so cool. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what inspiration for exactly what you're doing today. So that is, that's a great story. And for our last snake story today, I will tell you a snake story of my own. Um, and I'll do this every time we kind of compile a series of, uh, you know, of snake stories. And for this first one, instead of giving you one individual story, I have many of those. And again, I'll share those in the future. Um, but probably what I'll do today is give you kind of the origin story of how I became uh, so interested in and dedicated my life to snake conservation. And many of you probably know, but I'm one of those people who, when they were young, when I was a young child, I had a, a, almost like a, a crippling or, or I don't know if it was crippling, but it was a pretty significant fear of snakes. And I remember two events in particular. I remember once uh, going out to my back door and there was uh, what I now know is a garter snake um, right by the back stoop. 
And um, I literally shut the door and ran into the house, um, you know, just deathly afraid. I mean, I was probably in first or second grade at that point. I also remember another story where I was down at a local creek and, and swimming, and uh, we were in this particular swimming hole, and all of a sudden, one of my friends yelled, snake, and there was a snake swimming through the water that we were in. And, and similar to my response to the garter snake, I responded to this, what I now know as a, a water snake, by, you know, quickly getting out of the water, um, not getting back in, just, just really being overtaken with fear. And so there's just a couple uh, examples of uh, the fear I had as a young child. However, uh, as I started to get older, in particular, uh, later in high school, and then when I started college, I started to learn or, or sense that this fear of snakes was actually a really, really deep fascination. And that all these aspects about them that, that, you know, I was afraid of were actually really interesting. And I wanted to learn more um, about them. And so uh, I, I really embarked on a journey and I did a number of things, you know, in college, I ended up changing my major uh, to, to wildlife biology. I, I Again, still had a at this point kind of a low level fear of snakes, but I ended up buying a red tail boa constrictor just to force myself to to handle and interact with a snake every day. Um, and then, uh, you know, I eventually transitioned my career to focus on snakes. And I, you know, I was studying wildlife biology as I mentioned, and I was out in the Sierra Nevadas of California doing a a summer internship. And uh, I was working on turtles and frogs, other reptiles and amphibians, but I had the opportunity uh, to see my first rattlesnake in the wild. Um, it was actually a pretty cold day at relatively high elevation. I was doing frog surveys along a creek when I heard this noise I'd never heard before. Turns out it was the sound of a rattlesnake um, uh, being alerted. And very quickly, I noticed a uh, Northern Pacific rattlesnake coiled up on the bank of the creek. Uh, and it was just, a, that was a real transformational moment for me. And, and so I knew, I, I already knew I was fascinated with snakes, but now I knew that I was really fascinated with rattlesnakes, vipers, and other venomous snakes. Uh, some of the other things I did during that time, I remember, uh, you know, I bought uh, Harry Green's book on snakes. And I, I mean, digested that thing from cover to cover. I remember, uh, you know, being on airplanes, traveling and just looking through all of the photos and, and, uh, you know, and then that, then I graduated to field guides. I started buying field guides from all over the world and just, you know, looking through them like you would look through a magazine and then studying them like you would study a textbook and just trying to learn every piece of information I could about these snakes. Um, so 
that's kind of a, a real broad story, but it's an important one to me because it, it really formed who I am today and ended up leading to things such as the Orient Society and, and our conservation programs for various species and uh, led to things such as this podcast because that's what I hope this podcast can do for people. It can provide knowledge and information that over really broad scales can, can you know, change uh, people's behaviors, change how they think or feel about snakes, increase knowledge, whether you be somebody who's deathly afraid of them or somebody who's been studying their snakes their whole lives. So um, it's been a, a long road and there's a lot of detail in there that I didn't mention, um, but, uh, but that story was, was real formative in, in who I am today. And so I'm glad to share that. And in the future, I will share very specific snake stories about close, uh, close calls in terms of getting a venomous snake bite, which I've never had, by the way. Um, uh, finding species I've never seen, incredible abundances. So I have a lot of stories that I want to share, but I'll, I'll kind of share those um, as as we do future uh, snake story episodes. Well, I hope you have all enjoyed these amazing stories uh, that you, as you all know, that idea of sitting around a campfire and, and finding fellowship and entertainment in stories is, is something, you know, I really enjoy. And I think we need to be doing more of it uh, in the snake world. So hopefully, hopefully this episode will inspire you next time that you are out around campfire to tell somebody your best snake story i thank everybody for listening and remember snakes are animals too and it's a privilege to see one in the wild (laughs) 